And so, coronavirus rolled across the planet, putting us in peril and lockdown in March. We're now days away from another rollout in Scotland. A vaccine. the beginning of the end, Scotland starts COVID vaccines this Tuesday. It's the end of the beginning. Britain bids au revoir to the continent. And on course for a landslide, the SNP heads towards a majority in May. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Hollywood. The first vaccines against COVID will be administered in Scotland on Tuesday the 8th of December. So you can perhaps understand why I've probably smiled more in the last few minutes than you've seen me do in several months. The Prime Minister says we're living in a fantastic moment. The First Minister has smiled wider than she has in almost a year. Come Tuesday, the first Covid vaccine jab will happen in Scotland. The scientists promised and the regulators are convinced on delivery. This is not the end. The First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, warns we must stick to the restrictions. We can meet family and friends at Christmas, but just because we can, do we really need to, she asks. Caution and science has got us here. This is not the time, says the First Minister, to let down our guard. Let's begin this week's coverage at St Andrew's House in Edinburgh. Today is genuinely a good day. Um, We're not at the end of this pandemic yet and of course, and this is a point I will come back to later, we cannot and we must not ease up in our efforts to control it. But today does feel like it may well be the beginning of the end of this horrible experience. Um, And for that reason, I am sure I am far from the only one this morning who feels a lightness of heart uh, that I haven't felt in quite some time. Now, in terms of the detail, we expect vaccines to be delivered uh, over the course of December and we expect that that will happen uh, within the next few days or start to happen within the next few days. And if we receive the first doses of the vaccine as soon as we are expecting to, and there is no reason at this stage to doubt that, I can confirm to you that the first vaccines against COVID will be administered in Scotland on Tuesday the uh, the 8th of December. Uh, That is just six days from now. I'm going to say that again. The first vaccines against COVID will be administered in Scotland on Tuesday the 8th of December. So you can perhaps understand why I've probably smiled more in the last few minutes than you've seen me do in several months. It is, of course, worth remembering that everyone will require two doses of the vaccine uh, and that these are likely to be offered 21 to 28 days apart. So it's likely that it will take until very early in the new year to complete the first vaccine courses for any individual. But there is no doubt that being able to have this degree of confidence that we can start a vaccination programme next week is absolutely fantastic news. In London, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson warns the vaccine rollout is a long journey, but it's about to begin. It will inevitably take some months before all the most vulnerable are protected. Long, uh, cold months. So it's all the more vital that as we celebrate this scientific achievement, we're not carried away uh, with over-optimism or fall into the uh, naive belief that the struggle is over. It's not. We've got to stick to our winter plan. The rollout of COVID vaccines across the country begins this coming week and will continue into the spring of 2021. Scotland's Deputy Chief Medical Officer Nicola Steedman tells STV News the jab is not an immunity passport. So I know we're all very excited about this news and it's the best news that we've had for some time. We're all extremely grateful for this bit of hope that we've had. But this is a big challenge. It's a huge vaccination programme. It will depend on how much of the vaccine that we get initially, but we're very fortunate we have fantastic advice across the UK 
and the JCVI has given us a priority list of who should get the vaccine so first. So their priority list says that those people who are most at risk of COVID-related disease and death, so people in care homes, care home workers as well, health and social care workers who are frontline and patient-facing, and they, then it's principally by age, so the over-80s first. So those are the first ones in their prioritisation groups, and that's all published online. But this first vaccine is difficult, so you're going to have to bring a lot of the people who need the vaccine to hospitals to get it, aren't you? Correct. So first of all, we have that clinical prioritisation in terms of who's most at risk. And then we have the big logistical challenge, which is that this vaccine needs to be stored at minus 70 and it needs to be diluted and it can't be transported terribly easily. So that's why we need to think very carefully about how we maximise the use of the, the available vaccine that we have first to vaccinate as many people in those categories as we possibly can in the best way that we can. And how long before the rest of us can look forward to this then? So all of that depends on vaccine supply. This is not the only vaccine, that's the other thing to say. So as soon as vaccine becomes available to us, we will be rolling out according to the prioritisation, largely due to age and in descending order. And we would hope that if everything goes according to plan, we should have most of the people who are really at risk, in other words, those who are 50 and above, done by next spring. And then those who are less at risk, so under 50 with no other pre-morbid conditions after that. So is that when things start to open up then? Or once you've been vaccinated, can you start to do more? So it's not an immunity passport. That's the first thing to say because we just don't know yet exactly how much the vaccine prevents transmission, for example. So there's much more information that needs to come out on this. So we can't say that restrictions are just going to ease straight from day one and we need to see what the effect of the vaccine is over time. Clearly the more people that get the vaccine the better. The vaccines look like they are really effective at preventing disease and we all believe and hope that this is the first step on the path to being able to ease restrictions. Well, how long, very briefly, how long before we get family gatherings, how long before we can go to the cinema, the football, the pub? And I wish I could give you that answer because nobody wants that answer more than me. I think we're not going to be doing that probably for at least a number of months. I would say that's a, a, a first pass and then we see at that point how many people have had the vaccine, what the overall population effect of the vaccine is and at that stage hopefully we will be able to give people even more good news. Rest assured we'll be doing it as soon as we think it's safe to do it. Now with this week's breakthrough news about the first of a series of COVID vaccines being rolled out, you could be thinking it's all over. It isn't yet. Restrictions remain in place and the same advice about Christmas still holds. Although you can, in theory, travel to be with loved ones, the First Minister would rather you didn't. Nicola Sturgeon is keen we keep a low profile this festive season and plan our get-togethers in the spring of next year. Let's hear where we all stand in Scotland's tier levels. The level of the virus overall, and this is particularly the case in some parts of the country, is still higher than we need it to be. There are still pressures on the health service and any increase in rates of infection would very quickly intensify those. Um, as we go deeper into the winter period, uh, there are a number of factors that may well push transmission up again. And so we could see cases and resulting illness and death start to rise again. Uh, that means we have an interest in driving cases as low as we can now, um, and that necessitates continued caution. In summary, therefore, although we are encouraged by the impact current restrictions have had, the need to strengthen and solidify that progress means that we should take, continue to take care and err on the side of caution. So for all these reasons, uh, the Cabinet, when it discussed this earlier today, has concluded that we will not uh, propose any changes to the allocation of levels of protection this week. I'd also remind the Chamber that it is also the case that the level four restrictions in place currently in 11 local authority areas will be lifted a week on Friday, uh, the 11th of December. And so as we decide the levels each of uh, these areas will go into, we have an opportunity at next week's review uh, to look at the allocation of levels across the country more generally. And I would flag up uh, right now that it is likely, uh, therefore, that next week's review will be more substantial than today's. For now, though, I can confirm that uh, Highland, Murray, Orkney, Shetland and the Western Isles will remain in level one. Uh, Aberdeen City, Aberdeenshire, 
Argyllan Butte, the borders Dumfries and Galloway and East Lothian will remain in level two. However, I need to be clear, and I indicated this earlier on, that we have been looking and will continue to look very carefully in the days to come at both Aberdeen City and Aberdeenshire. Cases in both these local authority areas have increased quite sharply in the past week by 68% in Aberdeen and 42% in Aberdeenshire. Uh, that means their case numbers, although it's important to stress that in both uh, areas their case numbers are still below the national average, uh, are nevertheless higher than in some Level 3 areas, for example, Angus. Uh, case positivity has also increased in both areas. However, there is a need to understand more deeply the extent to which these increases are driven by specific outbreaks that are being actively managed within, for example, food processing uh, plants and care settings versus a wider and more general increase in community transmission, which would obviously be a concern, especially as we go further into the winter period. Uh, I have therefore asked that the data for both Aberdeen City and Aberdeenshire be considered in more depth over the next couple of days by the Chief Medical Officer and the National Incident Management Team um, and then discussed with both of the local authorities and the Grampian NHS Director of Public Health. Uh, given the degree of uncertainty in the information we have so far and obviously in recognition of the economic and social impact for any area of a move up to level three, we've decided to await this further analysis before reaching a firm conclusion. If this information does justify a move to level three for uh, one or both of these council areas, we will set this out uh, either at next week's review or if the situation merited it uh, earlier than that. Uh, the other level two council I want to make particular mention of today is Dumfries and Galloway. Uh, the data there is indicative of a move to level one soon. However, the concern right now, in addition, of course, to general winter factors, uh, which we are considering across the country, is that Dumfries and Galloway is bordered by areas with quite significant higher levels of infection. And that is why the strong public health advice, which the Cabinet has this morning accepted, is, it is for it to remain in level two for now. Uh, if I can turn to Level 3, um, Angus, Clackmannanshire, Dundee, uh, City of Edinburgh, Falkirk, Fife, Inverclyde, Midlothian, North Ayrshire and Perth and Kinross will remain in Level 3 for now. Uh, last week I expressed some concern about rising case numbers in Clackmannanshire and Perth and Kinross, but I'm pleased to note that numbers in both of these areas have stabilised and at this stage are improving. And finally, as I indicated previously, 11 local authority areas will remain in level four for a further week. These are Glasgow City, East and Western Bartonshire, Renfrewshire and East Renfrewshire, North and South Lanarkshire, East and South Ayrshire, Stirling and West Lothian. We will confirm next week the levels that these areas will move into when level four restrictions end on the 11th of December. So the vaccine rollout is a shot in the arm for Scotland, but it's not the end. Yet. Vaccination over time will help us all to return to a more normal pattern of life. Uh, and of course, that means that a possible route out of the pandemic for Scotland is now in sight. So we have all the more reason to uh, keep uh, ourselves and each other safe as we head towards, we hope, that end point. Sticking to the rules, uh, perhaps now more than ever, continues to be the way in which we can do that. So I would ask for continued compliance in the weeks ahead. Uh, outside of the three island authorities, none of us should be meeting in each other's homes. Meetings outdoors or in public indoor places should stay within the limits of six people from two households. Uh, and I would ask everyone to continue to abide by the really important travel restrictions. If you live in a level three or four area, do not leave your local authority area unless for an essential purpose. And if you live elsewhere, don't travel into a level three or level four area. And please avoid non-essential travel between Scotland and other parts of the UK. Uh, and finally, everybody should remember facts, the rules that help keep us all safe in our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, wear face coverings, avoid crowded places, clean uh, your hands and hard surfaces, keep two metres distance and self-isolate and get tested if you have symptoms. If we all stick to these rules, uh, then the progress I have been able to report today, I hope we will continue to see in the uh, days and weeks to come, which uh, will pave the way for uh, more parts of the country coming down into lower levels of restrictions in future. Earlier this week, the First Minister announced a £500 thank you bonus for health and social care workers. She may have thought it would go down well, but it hasn't with everyone. Labour leader Richard Leonard. £500 is a welcome gesture for the hard work of those key workers on the front line in health and social care. But for those key workers 
who have been working on the front line of other parts of the public sector, and for those in the private sector, like shop workers, it will be of little comfort. In fact, whilst I'm sure that shop workers would like a bonus this Christmas, what they need is some reassurance that they will have a job in the new year. With the collapse of two huge retailers in the last 24 hours and the real and devastating threat now posed to many retail jobs and suppliers, what assessment has the government made of the impact of Tier 4 restrictions on the retail sector? And will the Scottish Government now finally get round to establishing the Retail Recovery Group that has been promising to set up for months to try and save what is left of our high streets? First Minister. Um, firstly, on the uh, £500 thank you payment to NHS and care workers, uh, let me take the opportunity again today to say thank you to all of these workers. No payment, no payment can ever properly express our gratitude, but it is a, a small but important uh, way of doing that. Uh, all sorts of workers in all sorts of different uh, professions, occupations and sectors have gone above and beyond the call of duty in uh, the last uh, nine months, um, and they will have my uh, deep and everlasting gratitude for that. But I think we all recognise it's why we stood in our doorsteps uh, for week after week earlier in the year applauding health and care workers, uh, that the particular contribution uh, of that workforce is uh, I think, uh, worthy of particular recognition. It's only a matter of weeks, I, I think, uh, if my memory is serving me correctly here, that Richard Leonard at First Minister's Questions challenged me to do more to say thank you to NHS and care workers. But, of course, as soon as we do, he decides that that is not enough and he's going to uh, ask for uh, something else. Uh, but uh, we will uh, continue to do, in the face of uh, public sector pay freezes being announced by the UK Government, we will continue to do everything we can uh, to ensure proper reward and recognition, uh, not just for NHS uh, and care workers, but workers across the public sector who have contributed uh, so much. Um, in terms of uh, retail and the impact of all of these restrictions, we assess uh, all of these things carefully through the, the four harms analysis that we do. Uh, but the reality here is, and these are decisions that certainly in this part of the chamber cannot be avoided. Uh, unfortunately, government can't abstain on these decisions the way I understand uh, Labour are doing in another part of the, the UK today. We have to take decisions that suppress this virus to the extent that we can pave the way for the sustainable opening up of the economy. Because if we allow the virus to run out of control, the impact on the economy will be longer lasting and much deeper than it would otherwise be. And whether it's retail, uh, and uh, obviously we intend to lift the level four restrictions uh, on the 11th of December, uh, and we'll set out this time next week uh, what the, the levels are that these areas will go into after uh, the level four ones come to an end. And we will continue to work with sectors, including retail, uh, on recovery as we uh, move into the next phase, start to vaccinate people and hopefully get quickly back to a position where the economy uh, starts to trade and operate some, uh, on a basis much, much closer to normality than it is right now. I'll have more on the vaccine breakthrough later in the week in Holyrood. Now, with this year's focus on the pandemic, we may almost have forgotten the vital policy of... Brexit. We left the European Union at the end of January. We're in transition towards a formal exit at the end of this month. So will we go with a deal or no deal? Let's cross now to my colleague Rosie Wright at Euronews in Lyon. UK and EU negotiators are racing to reach a post-Brexit trade deal with just four weeks until the transition period ends. Face-to-face -face discussions resumed in London over the weekend in a last-ditch attempt to bridge the gaps on outstanding issues such as fishing rights. Both sides say a deal can still be done. Evelyn Laverick tells us more. Morning. It's yet another crunch week for the Brexit talks between Europe and the UK. With a sense of purpose, there was no let-up in discussions at the weekend between the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, and his counterpart, David Frost. We continue to work even this Sunday. The two sides are trying to strike an agreement to govern their trading relationship after the UK's post-Brexit transition period ends on December the 31st. Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab said on Sunday that the talks were entering the last real major week and an agreement was still possible if the EU shows pragmatism. If you look really what the outstanding issues are, of course, level playing field, but it feels like there's progress 
uh, towards greater respect for what the UK position was. On fisheries, there's a point of principle. As we leave the EU, we're going to be an independent, or we've left the EU, but as we leave the transition, we are an independent coastal state. We've got to be able to control our waters. EU countries want their boats to be able to keep fishing in British waters, while the UK insists it must control access and quotas. If there's no deal, New Year's Day will bring huge disruption with the overnight imposition of tariffs and other barriers to UK-EU trade. That will hurt both sides, but the burden will fall most heavily on Britain, which does almost half its trade with the EU. Evening Laverick, Euronews. Well, let's go to Brussels to find out more and speak to our correspondent Shona Murray. Morning to you, Shona. It is looking a little bit optimistic that a deal could be reached this week. Is that right? Yeah, I think uh, maybe optimism is a strong word there. I think it's much more ambition. I think the reason why is that the cost of failure for both sides is so high that they simply have to get a deal. And remember, around 95 to 96% of the text of the agreement is already written, the legal text and all of the above, around 600 pages. So that is certainly a good sign. But the outstanding parts, the 5% or so, uh, that's really greater than some of its parts. And they still remain, in particular, on fisheries. There really has been very little or no progress on fisheries since March. And we heard on Friday that the EU offered between 15 to 18% of the EU's fishing stock that it takes from UK waters. They've offered to return that to the UK. The UK said that that offer was derisory. It wants around 80 of its stock returned. So you can see that there's still quite a wide gap on that particular issue. And on the level playing field, we heard there from Dominic Rabb that there has been some movement on that, um, in particular on the issue of state aid or subsidies where the two sides are willing to agree a set of principles where any state aid given to any industry couldn't disproportionately affect the single market uh, and vice versa. So there is some movement, but I think uh, at the same time, we're still not there yet. But as you said there, uh, Rosie, the cost of failure is so high that they really have to agree something by the end of the week. I mean, the sticking points have been the same for weeks now. We've talked about it countless times, Shona. If they can't come to an agreement, what happens next? Well, it's like everything changes and nothing changes. Everything changes, obviously, as we heard there from Evelyn's package, in that the trading relationship between the EU and the UK goes something akin to the trading relationship between the EU and somewhere like Somalia or Afghanistan or, you know, a country that doesn't have a trading deal with the EU and its nearest neighbour, which is pretty outrageous because most of the UK's exports go to the EU, uh, well over 50%, and similarly, a lot of goods go into the UK. And it would be just a real failure of politics and statecraft if they weren't able to agree a deal. But at the same time, nothing changes because... If they don't agree a deal at the end of the week or by the end of the year, you'll just have chaos on the borders and you'll have both sides having in January to come together and actually create a deal because it w it's just not sustainable for there to be no deal between the EU and the UK when it comes to trade. The only thing is that they're returning back in January having failed this time. The, the relationship will be much more acrimonious so much more difficult. Rosie? Shona, thank you very much. Our correspondent there in Brussels. The engineering company Bifab has gone into administration. Bifab has bases in Fife and Lewis and got £52 million from the Scottish Government to help keep it going. But the company says it can't compete with other yards that are owned or subsidised by governments inside and out with the European Union. Alistair Allen, SNP, Nahilin Anandyar, says it's frustrating and the focus must now be on securing a future for the yard in Arnish. The yards at opposite ends of the country have been seen as vital to Scotland working in offshore wind manufacturing. Economy Secretary Fiona Hislop says the government is ready to work with any company interested in taking on both yards. The former Labour MP for Maryhill in Glasgow, Maria Fife, has died. Ms Fife, who played a central role in helping to establish Scottish devolution, served as MP from 1987 until 2001. Labour leader Richard Leonard pays this tribute. He's followed by words from the First Minister. Maria was a pioneer who fought for what she believed in to the very end. Uh, she was an inspiration to generations of Labour Party members, me included, and many people beyond. Uh, instrumental in campaigning for this Parliament, she led the Constitutional Convention's Working Party on equal representation of women. We are all in her debt uh, we mourn her passing today, but we celebrate her life. 
can I uh, take the opportunity to also express my condolences to the family, um, friends, colleagues, uh, including uh, those in the Labour Party, on the sad passing of Maria Fife. Uh, Richard Leonard uh, rightly said that uh, Maria Fife was an inspiration to colleagues in the Labour Party. Can I say she wasn't just an inspiration to colleagues in the Labour Party? Uh, I, of course, uh, for all of my political life, have been in a different political party, but when I was a young woman starting out in politics, she was one of very few women in the front line of politics, and she was a, a feminist icon then that I looked up to, didn't agree with on everything, but very much looked up to and found her example inspirational. And I think many of us, particularly women in politics today, uh, and of course many others, uh, owe her a great debt of gratitude. And I want to pass on my thoughts and condolences to everybody who loved her. You're listening to The Week in Hollywood. I'm Charles Fletcher. And coming up in the next half hour, more on the vaccine rollout nine months after Scotland's first case of COVID. And questions to the First Minister. So our journey back begins. The first COVID vaccine will start rolling out on Tuesday. The programme will continue into the spring and beyond. And it's welcome news that's put a spring in the step of the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon. The first vaccines against COVID will be administered in Scotland on Tuesday the 8th of December. So you can perhaps understand why I've probably smiled more in the last few minutes than you've seen me do in several months. Scotland's Health Secretary Jean Freeman has announced care home residents will receive the Pfizer COVID vaccine from December the 14th. In a statement to the Scottish Parliament, Ms Freeman says more than 65,000 doses of the vaccine will arrive this coming week. Vaccinations will begin on Tuesday. Presiding officer, yesterday was the day we've all been hoping and waiting for, and so I'm pleased to return to the Chamber to update Parliament on the deployment of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine, the first COVID-19 vaccine to receive authorisation to supply from the UK regulatory body, the MHRA. Previously, I set out the advanced planning we have undertaken so that we could be confident that as soon as the first vaccine supplies arrived, we were ready to begin. Today, I can confirm that we will begin from Tuesday the 8th of December, along with our counterparts across the four nations of the UK. Previously, I also set out a number of areas where we could not finalise our planning because we did not have the final and detailed information. Some of those areas remain, but the authorisation to supply received from the MHRA overnight on the 1st of December and advised to me in the early morning of the 2nd, alongside the final advice from the JCVI on the Pfizer vaccine that they published yesterday, provides some of that important information. Firstly, on the overall age range to be vaccinated. JCVI have now asked that we include 16- and 17-year-olds who have underlying health conditions. We will do that and factor those young people into our delivery. Secondly, MHRA have been clear that of the supplies arriving in December, we should retain 50% so that we can provide the second dose to those who have received their first dose within the timeframe advised. And finally, we have detailed information on those for whom this Pfizer vaccine is not advised, women who are pregnant and women who plan to be pregnant in the next three months. These are all vital pieces of information which will come perhaps differently in content for all the COVID-19 vaccines MHRA authorises and which allow us to complete the patient's leaflet to support informed patient consent and the necessary clinical governance protocols and advice to clinical teams. Throughout, we have worked, as I said, on a four-nation basis. And so yesterday morning, uh, with my colleague health ministers, uh, we said that subject to the first batch approved supplies arriving, we would begin, as I've said, on Tuesday the 8th. I will discuss uh, where we are with my other colleagues on Monday evening. Between yesterday and next Tuesday, detailed work and discussions are underway covering a number of issues. Completion, as I've said, of patient consent work, clinical governance arrangement protocols, safe transportation and storage guidance, data collection and training, which will occur on an iterative basis for the clinically accredited staff who will vaccinate. The training materials are being finalised by NES as we speak, using the detail now available from MHRA and JCVI, 
and the first sessions are scheduled for tomorrow and then for Monday, and we will then repeat that process throughout this entire programme. As members know, we will follow the JCVI advice and guidance on priority delivery of the vaccine. The vaccine aims to reduce mortality and morbidity from COVID-19, and the guidance prioritises those most at risk from harm on an age basis, asking us to then work our way through youngest adults, taking account of those who are clinically vulnerable. The only sectoral exemption to that is the health and social care sector uh, and the health and social care workforce, who are in the first priority group alongside those aged 80 and over and care home residents. Professor Waishen Lim, the chair of the JCVI COVID vaccine subgroup, has said that the aim of vaccinating care home residents and staff uh, everyone from the oldest to the youngest and healthcare workers is to cover almost 99% of vaccine preventable deaths from COVID-19. So this is clearly exactly the right approach for us to take. Now members know that Pfizer vaccine has specific storage and transportation requirements of exceptionally low temperature and limited transportation time once taken out of that low temperature environment. It also comes to us in pack sizes of 997 doses. All of that poses particular logistical challenges in vaccinating individuals close to their home, so clearly a challenge in vaccinating care home residents and indeed for elderly citizens who live in their own home. I'm very pleased to say that over lunchtime today, following detailed discussions led by our Chief Pharmaceutical Officer, we now have confirmation on the basis of the stability data that the Pfizer vaccine can be trans transported in an unfrozen state for up to 12 hours and can be stored undiluted for up to five days. I'm also pleased to confirm that under certain conditions, we can pack down to smaller pack sizes, both, uh, both of which makes this vaccine more usable with minimum wastage for care home residents and for our older citizens. So in effect, we can take the vaccine to them or close to them and we will begin that exercise from the 14th of December. Presiding officer, a vaccination programme of this scale is a significant logistical challenge and requires a major nationwide effort. But it is one we undertake with optimism and determination to succeed. There will no doubt be glitches on the way and unexpected difficulties to overcome, but science has excelled yet again to give us hope. Now we will get on to deliver on that, and I look forward to working with members across this chamber in that work. Thank you. Thank you, Cabinet Secretary. I call Donald Cameron to be followed by Monica Lennon. Can I thank the Cabinet Secretary for advance sight of her statement? Yesterday's announcement was groundbreaking and gives millions of people across our country hope that we will soon return to some semblance of normality. But we still have a long way to go, and it's vital that we get the rollout of this vaccine and future vaccines right. For instance, we would welcome the government publishing a full list of venues across the country that will administer the vac vaccine and which venues will open this month. Can I ask the Cabinet Secretary these questions? Firstly, on workforce, can she tell us how many of the 2,000 vaccinators and support staff required to deliver the first phase are in place in each of the health boards? And of these 2,000, how many will be vaccinators and how many support staff? Secondly, given the particular storage needs of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, how many freezers are currently in each health board area? What is their capacity and does the government have orders out for any more? Cabinet Secretary. Uh, thank you very much. I'm grateful to Mr Cameron for his questions. Uh, in terms of publishing a full list of venues, uh, as the First Minister said, we will publish uh, as soon as we have them confirmed all the venues that are currently in place across all the board areas. Uh, that, I would expect, would be something we'll be able to do uh, certainly before the Christmas recess. Uh, but remembering the first uh, priority groups are health and social care workers and care home residents, and I'm delighted that the uh, agreements that were reached over lunchtime mean that we can take the vaccine to those care home residents and those who are over 80, some of whom we would want to be able to take it to them in their own home because that is much more person-centred for them. There are 23 uh, commercial uh, freezers uh, that have been purchased. They are located across all our health boards and our island authorities. Uh, I, will, I would wish 
to advise members where they are. But I have to say, and this is not a, a reason for not doing that, but national security, which is a part of MI5, is very um, unsure about the wisdom of making public where our storage is for what is a very precious vaccine indeed. And so we continue to talk on a four-nation basis with them uh, because evidently, you know, obviously and evidently people want to know that their area is covered. What I can do and will do is advise members of how many each board area has so that you can see, uh, I hope, that we are ensuring uh, proper coverage. They're there, they're being tested, uh, and they are all of a size that can accommodate the vaccine supplies we expect as they come through. In terms of workforce, uh, my uh, statement made it clear uh, the number of um, whole-time equivalent vaccin vaccinators we will need for the first week or so. Uh, there is a model on, that we use in order to estimate uh, the number of people in, within that 2,000 that we will need at various stages in the programme. Uh, that is uh, currently being prepared and written so that I can advise Ms Lennon, who asked me that question before, and I'm very happy to ensure that Mr Cameron and the other health spokespeople also see what that model is and therefore how we flex and plan uh, uh, the recruitment of individuals and where we need them to be, including how we bring in those additional clinical workforce on sessional basis, like pharmacists and dentists and optometrists, as and when we need them. Thank you. Monica Lennon. Thank you, Presiding Officer, and I thank the Cabinet Secretary for advance sight of her statement. The rollout of the first vaccines in just five days' time really is the best early Christmas present that people in Scotland have been dreaming of, and there's really good news in here for care homes, which I welcome. Can I ask the Cabinet Secretary, um, will all care home residents be vaccinated during this first phase? And when does she expect all care home um, vaccinations to, to be complete? Cabinet Secretary. So I'm uh, grateful to Ms Lennon. Uh, I too am absolutely delighted at the progress that was made over lunchtime that will allow us to take the vaccine to care homes. Um, it is one of the most critical things, and it was one of the most challenging things about the Pfizer vaccine. So I think our senior officials and indeed MHRA and Pfizer themselves deserve our congratulations and thanks for getting us to that place. Um, so in terms of care homes, that one of the reasons why I made a point of um, pulling out the, um, the changes that had appeared since I last spoke in the chamber about the vaccine programme um, was to, to highlight the clear advice that of the supplies of the vaccine that we receive in December, we need to hold 50% of that so that the people who are vaccinated in December can get their second vaccination in January. Um, now, uh, that, that is uh, not quite what we expected. Uh, and what it does mean is that, for example, in the, the first um, of the, batch, uh, the batches that have passed testing, that we expect are 65,500 uh, doses. Uh, instead of vaccinating 65,500 people, we, we vaccinate half of that number and hold the other half of the uh, doses so we can do them again within the time period allowed. Now, we, we expect more supplies to arrive over December, um, and as those are uh, confirmed and we're clearer about that, that lets us know how many people we can vaccinate in December ready to redo those individuals in January. So that has an implication on whether or not we can vaccinate all the residents in all of our care homes. And so I've asked our clinical advisors, uh, who will uh, also have a connection directly to JCVI, how, if we have to, should we prioritise our care homes? Um, so that we will get through them all, but we won't necessarily get through them all in the month of December. So how might we do that? And as soon as I have that information, then um, I'll be uh, sure to let members know that. But also, I hope as I get that information, I also get confirmation uh, about other supplies and their delivery dates, which may ease that particular pressure. Earlier, Scottish Conservative group leader at Holyrood, Ruth Davidson, began her questions to the First Minister on the vaccine breakthrough. The approval of the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine for widespread use is the news that millions of people across the country have been waiting for. Now we need to make sure it gets out to people 
as quickly and efficiently as possible. First, as we all know, the vaccine needs to be stored in specialist freezers at an ultra-low temperature of minus 70 degrees Celsius. Yesterday, the Public Health Minister announced that three of the 23 freezers published by the Scottish Government are going to the Highlands. So can the First Minister confirm how many freezers each of the other health board areas will receive under the Scottish Government's plan and whether they are all already in place? First Minister. Um, I will make sure that we put a list of the exact locations and exactly uh, where they are in, in, in getting there, but there will be a, a freezer, uh, 23 freezers that will be sited in NHS board vaccine deployment centres in every uh, NHS board. Uh, and uh, the first vaccines uh, that are delivered and we are expecting to get in the region of 65,500 uh, doses of the vaccine uh, by uh, next Tuesday. Um, one of the issues that is not yet certain and is subject to ongoing discussion Discussion with the MHRA is the ability to move the vaccines uh, from these ultra-low temperature freezers to, for example, care homes. Um, and while that may not be possible immediately, it uh, is something uh, that we hope will become possible uh, very soon. But of course, uh, that depends on these ongoing discussions. Uh, there is no issue more important to this government right now uh, than making sure this uh, vaccination programme uh, works effectively and efficiently, uh, that as soon as we have supplies of vaccines, they are used to vaccinate people in the order of priority, of course, set out by the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation. And uh, the focus of me, the Health Secretary and the entire government is in making sure that all the appropriate steps are taken. Labour's Richard Leonard is concerned about the rollout of the COVID vaccine and the state of the rollout of the annual flu vaccine. We, of course, welcome and join in the news this week that a vaccine will be available in just five days' time. However, we know that the rollout of the flu vaccine this winter has been problematic. Uh, Here's what one person told me just yesterday. He said, my personal experience with the current flu jab arrangements is a bad one. No letter of invitation from the health board had come this year by the beginning of November. Uh, Wife rings up, offered precisely timed appointments on the 4th of November at a church. Turn up. No record of our appointment. Get vaccinated nevertheless. Staff at church, excellent. Two weeks later, get letter of invitation for vaccination. And many people have had the same experience. But this was the experience of world-renowned virologist, Professor Hugh Pennington. We know that the COVID vaccine requires not one but two doses, that they have to be 21 to 28 days apart, So the logistics and administration of delivering this vaccine will be even more critical. So, First Minister, are you really going to leave the current Minister for Public Health in charge of this? First Minister. On the uh, vaccine uh, point, uh, firstly on on the flu vaccine, um, the the flu vaccination programme had to be delivered very differently this year because of the challenges of COVID. Uh, And because of that, I readily acknowledge, as the Health Secretary has done, uh, there were some problems and issues in some NHS boards as that programme uh, rolled out. Uh, Steps were taken to address and resolve those, and the flu vaccination uh, programme is uh, now progressing extremely well, and uptake in many of the eligible groups is as high uh, and indeed higher as we perhaps would have expected it uh, to be, and that programme uh, will continue to conclusion. In terms of uh, responsibility, for uh, the COVID vaccine and indeed for all aspects of the COVID response, uh, whether it's the Health Secretary, the Public Health Minister or any minister, we are collectively responsible and engaged in making sure that we respond effectively to to all aspects of this crisis. Ultimately, on all of these things, of course, the buck stops with me, and that is uh, right and proper. But the government is uh, focused intensely on making sure that all of the difficult, and they are very difficult logistical challenges around the COVID uh, vaccination programme, are getting the attention they need and merit, uh, and that as we face challenges with it, as uh, undoubtedly we and other countries will, we address them and get this vaccine uh, to the maximum number of people as quickly as possible. Because it does, uh, for the first time in nine months, give us uh, hope for the future. It gives us that light uh, at the end of the tunnel that all of us have been so desperate to see. So it is vital that it uh, proceeds uh, as quickly as is feasible. And that's the commitment I give. For the Scottish Greens, here's Patrick Harvey. Naturally, I share the optimism that's been expressed about the vaccine approval, and I offer my sincere thanks to the researchers, regulators, and the many thousands 
of vaccine trial volunteers who have made this possible. They've given us hope. As well as creating hope, we need to address people's fears, and the fear of eviction during this pandemic has been very real for tenants in Scotland. So I welcome the announcement today that an eviction ban will be put in place. And I commend my colleague Andy Whiteman and campaigners like Living Rent, who have worked hard to push the government to change position on this. There has been a lot of speculation about the school holidays and different views about the safest thing to do. The Education Secretary has said this morning that there is to be no extension to the holidays, despite suggesting earlier in the week that this might be necessary. Last week, the First Minister told me that her government hadn't assessed the potential impacts the Christmas relaxation on the regulations would have. So can I seek some clarity? Does today's announcement now mean that the Scottish Government doesn't believe the loosening of restrictions over the Christmas period could lead to a third wave in January, as public health experts have predicted, and that there is no risk of young people bringing COVID into schools in January, putting each other, their communities and school staff at risk, forcing even more to self-isolate in the new year? First Minister. Um, can I thank Patrick Harfrey for these questions? I, I am never going to stand here and say uh, in, in any sense that there is no risk to the public during a global pandemic. That is why we all have to act in responsible ways, as the overwhelming majority of the public have been, to mitigate those risks as much uh, as possible. Now, we have, uh, I think, from a, a very pragmatic point of view, uh, recognised that over Christmas there may be a tendency for different households to come together uh, more than they would at other times of the year. So we have tried to put some guidance and boundaries around that to keep that as safe as possible, although it will not be risk-free, but be very clear that our advice is where possible people should not interact uh, over Christmas. And I uh, hope that uh, many people, and I know many people I've spoken to, particularly with uh, the prospect of a vaccine so close, uh, understand how important it is to continue to take uh, that mitigating action over, over the Christmas period. Uh, but there are obviously risks at all times of different households coming uh, together. Uh, the, we've considered very carefully uh, the uh, issue of school holidays and we took advice from the subcommittee of the COVID advisory group which the Deputy First Minister has sent to the Education Committee this morning and uh, that advice for those who uh, take the opportunity to read it reflects the fact that this is a difficult decision where there are views on both sides. The, the balanced judgment it uh, has come to and the, the Scottish Government has come to is that the risks of transmission in schools even after the Christmas period um, is not uh, sufficient, that we don't think that is a sufficient risk and we've all got through before the reasons why uh, we do not think transmission in schools is a big driver of infections, that that risk does not outweigh uh, the risk to children's education of being out of school for uh, longer periods of time. None of these judgments and decisions are straightforward. We take care to think them through very carefully. But I recognise that almost on every single issue here, whatever judgment we come to, there will be people who legitimately and understandably think we should have come to the opposite one. And that is, is regardless of which side of these issues we come down uh, upon. But that is why it is so important for us to continue to stress that we all have to act in a way through our individual behaviour uh, that is reducing as far as possible the risk of this virus spreading from person to person and household to household. The First Minister says at this stage, school exams will go ahead next year. Year, but it's under scrutiny by the Education Secretary, John Swinney. Lib Dem leader Willie Rennie wants the decision to cancel them now. On any given day, there are up to 30,000 pupils and 1,500 teachers absent for COVID-related reasons. Some have had to self-isolate for a fortnight multiple times, while others haven't minute, missed a minute of school. That means we need an effective alternative to those higher and advanced higher exams. But to make that happen, teachers and students need plenty of warning. The longer the government waits, the less time teachers have to prepare, the greater the problem becomes. The Welsh Government have decided weeks ago to cancel those exams. So will the First Minister think again and make the decision and cancel those exams now? First um, I think if Willie Rennie had listened to my last answer, he would uh, know that the government is thinking uh, very carefully. I think it's right on all of these things. There are no simple answers on this. And uh, I think as has been evidenced in, in the parliament over the last nine months, almost on every decision we've taken, rightly and properly, 
understandably and legitimately, uh, there have been MSPs and people amongst the wider population who have said we should have done the opposite of what we have done. That is in the nature of this. It is important that we take the time to get this right because that matters to all young people. Um, the Deputy First Minister had previously said that uh, mid-February would be the the last possible date for taking a decision on this. I think there is an argument, a strong argument, that says that we should come to a conclusion in this earlier uh, than mid-February, and we are uh, discussing this intensely at the moment. And we will take account of all of the factors uh, that face young people right now, the desire many young people have to sit the exams that they work for, but the uh, understandable concern on the part of uh, many young people that because of self-isolation and the wider disruption of COVID, uh, having to sit an exam would not be fair for them to do. And we will come to a balanced decision um, as, as soon as we think uh, that is appropriate. And in the interim, of course, uh, as I said, I think in uh, response to Patrick Harvey, contingency plans for the higher and advanced higher courses are currently being developed. I, mean, I know the First Minister is thinking hard about these things, but everybody in this Parliament thinks about these things. And I have certainly come to the conclusion that we need to act earlier than February. With the great news about the vaccine, people want to know how restrictions will be eased. As a Liberal, I am nervous about talk of immunity passports to get into shops, restaurants and onto planes. Putting personal information onto large databases has risks to privacy and the possibility of fraud, hacking and theft. The WHO questioned the value of immunity passports. The UK Government has said it has no plans to introduce them. I want to go further. I think we need guidance. There may be a need to make changes to the law to protect people from misuse. So what is the Scottish Government's policy on immunity passports? Um, I'll come on to that directly, uh, but just to round off on the previous issue, I uh, know that everybody in Parliament thinks uh, seriously about these issues, and I, I deeply respect that. Government has to take decisions, though, after we have done the thinking. So it's just important, I, I think Willie Rennie is right, that we don't take long, too long to reach these conclusions, but that we do take the time to get to the right conclusions. And, and I just want to assure uh, learners and their parents across the country that that is what we are doing. Um, you, I, I don't know that uh, Willie Rennie or anybody else will have heard me, the Health Secretary, or anybody else talk about the, the prospect of immunity passports. It is not something uh, we plan to do. It's not something uh, we favour. I, as it happens, uh, would share uh, some of the philosophical and ethical objections to it uh, that Willie Rennie has just articulated. But there are also practical issues. One of the things we don't yet know about the vaccine that's just been authorised, or indeed any of these vaccines, is the extent to which they prevent transmission of COVID, uh, we uh, know uh, from the trials of the Pfizer vaccine that they, they suppress the illness of people uh, with it, so they stop people getting seriously ill. But we won't know for some time until the vaccine starts to be used whether they actually prevent onward transmission. So the very concept from a practical point of view of saying just because you have had the vaccine you cannot pass it on to somebody else it is flawed as well. So we have uh, no plans to introduce immunity passports just as we have no plans to make uh, vaccination compulsory, um, although we will uh, strongly encourage uh, maximum take-up of the vaccine. Uh, we will always consider whether there are legal changes uh, necessary to support the policy position, but I think perhaps the, the starting point is for all, is, all of us across the Chamber, if it is the position of everybody across the Chamber, I don't know that obviously, is just to make clear it's not something that this Parliament um, is contemplating at all. A new poll by Ipsos Mori for STV has Nicola Sturgeon heading for an overall majority at next year's election in May. It projects 73 seats for the SNP. That's up 12 from today. The poll also shows continuing support for independence. This one comes in at 56% for yes.